Well, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Revelation chapter 14, which is where we are in our study of the book of Revelation. And we left off having dealt with the second beast two weeks ago, and we are in the midst of the fourth of seven cycles that we see in Revelation, and in this one we've been dealing with some characters. When chapter 12 of Revelation ended, you had Satan the dragon standing on the shore, seething in anger, ominously. How is he going to kill the church? That's what he wants. He wants to make war on the church and anybody born out of the church. He's failed to kill Jesus, but he is determined that he will not fail in killing Jesus' bride. And so he summons two beasts in chapter 13. The first beast, we determined, represents governments that are used by Satan to attempt to destroy the church. The second beast delivers deceiving messages that Satan uses to deceive people, to keep them from believing the gospel, and to get them to worship the first beast. And so for the Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, the beast that comes out of the sea, the first beast they certainly would have thought of as Rome. The second beast they would have thought of as the Roman imperial cult who was going around saying that if you do not uh, bow your knee to Caesar as Lord, as God, well then we're going to cut your head off. We're going to persecute you. And we are going to punish you. And so when they heard this, they would have said, okay, that's Rome, that's the Roman imperial cult. But we know that it's any government used by Satan in church history uh, to oppress the church. And it's any antichrist spirit that comes along uh, and, and, and that message is sent out by Satan to get people to worship the first beast. And when you hear this, when you hear there's a great scheme that is being undertaken by Satan in hopes of devouring you, destroying you, that ought to cause you to take notice. And that's the situation that we're in tonight. Satan would like to destroy the church and this church with hateful persecution and with lies that are born of hell. He is deploying his minions and his monsters to accomplish the task. How are we going to overcome? Some say... We need to overcome by taking this nation back. Just need the right candidate, man. If we have the right candidate, we can fix all this. But I wonder, does the New Testament even point to a mandate for actions like that? Are those our answers if we are Bible people? Is there a better answer than that? Is there a vision that we're getting here in this text that demands we get our eyes up off of the kingdoms of this world. And we see that there is a better kingdom coming. And maybe the church on earth needs that. Needs a picture of the church in heaven so that we respond faithfully in the face of these beasts. And so we're going to work through John's heavenly vision here in chapter 14, verses 1-5, through and consider how the church on earth should respond to Satan's beast. And we're going to ask four questions. Who is the Lamb? Where is Mount Zion? Who are the 144,000? And how do we defeat the beast? How do we overcome? And so let's pray before we read the word of the Lord. Father, guard us from being knowledgeable fools tonight. Guard us from being people 
that store up your word in their heads, but never let it get to their hearts. Those are knowledgeable fools. There are knowledgeable fools walking around all over the place in this world. They know things about the Bible. They know things about you. They have sat under teaching. They have heard sermons. It doesn't touch their heart. And it never makes it to their hands. Far be it from us to be knowledgeable fools, Lord. Teach us your wisdom and your instruction and cause us to cherish it and transform us from the inside out. May the word not just fill our heads, but invade our hearts and move our hands and feet to action. Speak tonight, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the word of God in Revelation 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb and in their mouth... No lie was found, for they are blameless. We have quite a few elements in this passage that need identification. Have you ever wondered why that is with the book of Revelation? Why didn't John just write in a lot more straightforward language like he does in the Gospel of John or in his pastoral letters? It's the same guy. How come when he writes the Gospel of John, it's not all these symbols? How come when he writes his pastoral letters, he's not talking about living creatures and, and, and beasts rising out of the sea? Well, it's because he's writing to Christians who are under threat. And because they're under threat, he writes in code. So if the letter were to fall into the hands of the authorities, they wouldn't know what's being talked about. If a Roman got a hold of this letter, they wouldn't know what to make of it. Joel Beakey says, Revelation is written in symbols because the people of God to whom John writes are being persecuted by the Roman Empire. If John's book gets into the hands of the Roman authorities, the Christians already under attack will suffer even more. So John writes this vision in coded symbolic language. And so the code protects those that read it. That's why we have so many symbols that require us to dig back into the Old Testament to figure out what these symbols are alluding to and what they're referring to. And we have some code to work through this evening, and we start with really the easiest. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. The lamb is not hard to identify. Jesus Christ is the lamb. John looks away from these beasts and now he's got someone much sweeter, much more glorious in his sight. He sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion. We'll get to Mount Zion in a second, but identifying the lamb is not hard. It's the same slain but standing lamb from chapter 5 who was alone worthy to take the scroll and open it. So Revelation 5, starting in verse 5, says... And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is that same lamb. 
It is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? That's how John the Baptist identified him. When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's who we have standing on Mount Zion in chapter 14, verse 1. And when you compare him with the beast, well, to the naked eye, he seems weak and he seems vulnerable. After all, the Lamb is not exactly a picture of strength and unmovable power. Not in our culture. There's a reason why there's not an NFL team called the Lambs, right? Look out, the Lambs are coming to town. Like, it just it doesn't feel the same way the Bears does or the Cowboys does, right? Even, even the Commanders sounds better than the Lambs. Even in the first century, the Lamb was certainly not a picture of strength and power. The beasts, on the other hand, I mean, these are terrifying creatures, monsters with multiple heads and horns, feet like a bear, body like a leopard, mouth like a lion, In the case of the second beast, he looks like a lamb, but he talks like a dragon. Many would expect that God's plan to deal with the dragon, to deal with these beasts, it would have involved bombs, it would have involved battalions, but that is not so. His entire solution is summed up in John's words, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. That's it. For every problem you see in this world, this is God's solution. The lamb stands on Mount Zion. The Jewish people say that this Messiah being born and living and dying and being hung on a tree, that's too far, man. Cursed is the man who hung on a tree. That can't be the Messiah. So the Jewish people, they count Jesus being the Christ as a stumbling block that must be rejected. The Greco-Roman culture around the church in Asia Minor, they looked at the cross as a joke. God became a man? The divine would enter into this disgusting human flesh and then he would die on a cross and not be able to save himself from it? They scoffed at the claims of Christ and his church. It was folly to them. And Paul sums this up in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But for us, for believers, when we see the Lamb... It's not a stumbling block, and he is not a joke. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God to save the souls of men. Which is why Paul says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This Jesus who stands on Zion, the Lamb of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, is the only hope for the world that God has created. Without him, the world will perish But if a soul is hidden in him, they are counted righteous before God and they are saved. But the strength and the wisdom of God in Christ, this is not apparent to the world. We know if somebody is hidden in Christ, hidden in his strength and his righteousness, right? They are perfect in the eyes of the Father. They are saved. They are redeemed. And we know it's because of the strength of Christ that someone can stand in Christ and be counted as redeemed. But the world looks at him and says he's weak. We see here, though, that they're wrong. He's not weak. He stands on Mount Zion. He stands on heavenly ground. Spoiler alert for point number two. The first beast rises from the sea. The second beast stands on the earth. They seek to have dominion over the whole globe, right? Land and sea. But the Lamb is above them both. He stands above them, showing his majestic power, showing his governing authority. The fact that he's on Mount Zion and they are below, cemented in the elements of the earth, shows he is truly authoritative and they are not. They have a limited authority, 
for a time, but they are counterfeits of the true lamb, counterfeit of the true spirit. The lamb that stands on Mount Zion, they count him as weak, but we know he did not win his kingdom in weakness. He won it in strength. His strength just looked like weakness to the world because he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Instead, he humiliated himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He won his kingdom by suffering. And then he set a pattern for us, leaving Paul to say to Timothy, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. But Christ won the day through a bloody, humiliating death. And the world looks at it and says, he is not strong. And we're okay with them saying that if they want, because our God overcame by suffering. We know, we know that he is not weak. But he overcame by suffering. And it is a great reminder to us that the kingdom is one in suffering. It's one in tribulation. It is one in servanthood. It's one in humility. It is one in taking up the towel and washing the feet, doing the things that the world counts as weak. And Revelation is proof of that. There's nowhere in the Bible Satan seems as active and as successful as Revelation. Christians are being killed. Churches are struggling. The gospel witness is being persecuted. And yet, this active and successful dragon is being killed by a child. He's being slayed by a lamb. He is being thrown down by one who was slain. I think there's a lot of times we want to be strong in the face of our enemies. We want to answer their unrighteous anger with unrighteous anger. In fact, some politicians have told us to do that. We want to answer their accusations with accusations. We want to answer their violent protests with violent protests. And you will not find a single verse in your New Testament Bible justifying that behavior out of you as a Christian, no matter who tells you to do it. We have a lamb who invites us to join in his victory by showing up to the slaughter. He offers us a share of his reign for those willing to taste his suffering. We say we're Christians, that means a little Christ, then we have to act like Christ. We must be willing to win through weakness, win through suffering, even if it would mean our death for the sake of truth. The Asia Minor Christians face all the same stuff we're facing today as American Christians. Sexual ethics gone wild? Oh boy. It was all over their culture. The government failing in its job to protect and instead shoving a warped morality down the throats of their society? I'd say an imperial cult going around demanding everybody bows down to the emperor as God is a pretty warped morality they were shoving down people's throats. You might have a big problem with Joe Biden, but I haven't had anybody come to my door telling me to bow down to him as God. Church was struggling with nominalism, losing its first love. You see that in what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. There were false teachers running around in the church. There were abusive leaders on the national and global stage. And what was the answer for those churches? It's not politicians. It's not Herod. It's not taking up arms. It's looking to Jesus. It is overcoming by sharing in his suffering, witnessing to the truth of the gospel of the kingdom, holding fast to the end. It's the only solution that Revelation offers the church. You overcome by holding on to him, preaching him, witnessing to him all the way to the end. Second question for the night, where is Mount Zion? 
If the Lamb is code for Jesus, then Mount Zion is code for heaven. And so that's our second point. Heaven is represented by Mount Zion. I'll tell you how I get there. In the Old Testament, Zion is most often referred to as Jerusalem, the city of the king. And this has led many to interpret Revelation 14 literally. And they say that when the Lord Jesus comes back, he's going to physically return to Mount Zion in Jerusalem where he will battle the Antichrist and, and his legions there at the end of time. I would argue this is not how the New Testament views Mount Zion. That we don't see Zion being talked about in the New Testament as an earthly place, but an eternal city that is to come. The New Testament doesn't focus on a city that is located over in the Middle East in Israel, but a city that is physically located in heaven and that is going to come to earth. Hebrews 12 verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It could not be more clear. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We don't see the New Testament being concerned with your earthly citizenship, but your heavenly citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we never even see the New Testament calling on us to identify with the nation that we have an address uh, in here on earth. It always tells you to get your eyes up over the horizon. And this is probably because Jesus told us clearly that his kingdom is not here. My kingdom is not of this world, he says in John 18. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. John's revelation is right in line with the focus of the other New Testament writers, right in line with the focus of Christ himself in John 18. This is not an earthly city, not the earthly city that David established and Solomon adorned in Old Covenant glory. This is the heavenly city that will come down in new covenant splendor when Christ returns. And we can be sure of that because what we have here in Revelation 14 is just a clear, clear parallel to Psalm 2. So if you go to Psalm 2, just look at what you see there. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? This is how uh, the psalmist starts. This is the question that is asked. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord is Yahweh, his anointed, capital A is the Messiah, this is Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's Revelation 13, is it not? You have fallen governments and their mouthpieces conspiring against the Lord and his church in hopes of taking over land and sea. It's the nations raging. It's the kings of the earth setting themselves and the rulers taking counsel together. They want to deceive the people who dwell in the earth. They want to take over the world. Satan wants the whole world bowing down to the first beast and trusting in it for security and for safety. And the people of the earth are happy to oblige because the second beast has convinced them that the first beast is worthy and Jesus is not. But while we turn on our TV sets... And whoever replaces Tucker Carlson wrings their hands about the future. Do you know what God is doing? He's laughing. 
Psalm 2 verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He doesn't laugh at the sin, he hates the sin. What he's laughing at is the attempt of sinners to overthrow him as if they can. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so while the people of the earth are rioting and raging and burning the world down, God responds by setting his king on his hill. What does that sound like? A lot like a lamb standing on Zion. So I think we got Psalm 2 as a parallel to Revelation 14. And I don't think that John's imagery is meant to cause first century believers to hear it and to think of a future event where Jesus descends to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Instead, I believe the believers are meant to contrast the beast on the earth in chapter 13 with the lamb who is on Zion in chapter 14. And it's a parallel to Psalm 2 because the same principle from Psalm 2 is being taught, which is this. The world is in the grip of the dragon's beast. The world is listening to the Antichrist spirit. That much is clear. We see it all around us. The institutions are fallen. The people leading them are fallen. The path to destruction is broad. The majority of the people on the earth are taking the mark of the beast. They are bowing down to the beast as their hope for safety and security. They're walking on that broad path. The dragon is pleased to see so many deceived. And yet the principle of Psalm 2 and of Revelation 14.1 is this, is that you and I do not have a reason to despair despite all of this. Because while things are horrible in the world, the Lamb stands firmly on Mount Zion. Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem is not burning. We worry about that. We're like, we're like oh man, I, I, I don't want to see my country burn. Your country is not burning. The Lamb stands on Zion, and it is just fine. There's no protests there. There's no elections there. He rules, he reigns, and one day when he returns, his kingdom's going to come, and every single kingdom of this world, including the one we live in, is going to get swallowed up. The dragon can't stop it. The beast can't thwart it. The false prophet can't reverse it. He died, he rose, he ascended. He will return, and the nations are his inheritance. So don't run around panicking and screaming like the sky is falling. You believe in a book that has told you the sky is not going to fall until the Son of God unzips it and steps His divine foot through it and comes back and judges this world and redeems this world. So look to Him. Look to Zion. He is in control. Christ is the Lamb. Zion is heaven. Who are these 144,000? Well, it's the church triumphant. The 144,000 of the church triumphant, we've already seen them before, but they were in a bit of a different state the last time we met them. We met them in chapter 7. You remember, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so these are Christians, these are followers of Christ, members of the church. They're represented by the number 144,000. Twelve, there's good numbers and bad numbers in the Bible. Twelve's a good number. It represents the people of God. Twelve sons, twelve tribes, twelve disciples. Tens in multiples of ten, they, it's also a good number, signifies completeness of the people of God from the human perspective. So then, what we have is twelve multiplied against itself, 
and then you have it multiplied by a thousand. So this is the multiplying numbered and known people of God. And here's what is really important for us to remember from chapter 7. If you go back there, the 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads, but they're not in heaven. They're on earth. How do we know? Because God tells the four angels, don't harm the earth until the believers who are on it are sealed on their foreheads. Where are they at in chapter 14? They're not on earth anymore. The church militant in chapter 7, lined up, rank and file to serve him, are now the church triumphant in heaven in chapter 14 because they have endured to the end and they have overcome in the Lamb. The message to the seven Asia Minor churches here is clear. If you are a sealed saint, you will not take the mark of the beast. It might cost you everything. You might not even be able to buy and sell in the marketplace and get food for your family because you identify with the lamb. But don't worry, he's on his throne. You suffer with him now, you will reign with him later. You're sealed by him and you are in him and you will overcome the tribulation of the world in him. All who are truly in the grip of Christ, all who truly belong to the Lamb, will endure to the end. They are sealed, therefore they overcome. They overcome because they are sealed. And we learn quite a few things about these Christians, this this group that has overcome. First of all, they're worshipers. Of course they are. They have this collective voice in verse 2 that is like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. That is reminiscent of Jesus. In chapter 1, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Do you know why they sound like Christ? Because they follow Christ. I was just reading uh, yesterday about how John Owen taught, the great Puritan John Owen, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes into you, when the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, he teaches you to love the Son the way the Father does. And He teaches you to love the Father the way the Son does. And so, the reason the church is singing with a voice like Jesus is because they love the Father like Jesus. And the Spirit has taught them to do this. And so, the glory they offer reflects the glory He possesses. Their worshiping voice is also like the sound of harpists who are playing on their harps. The harp was the heavenly instrument of worship in Hebrew culture. Its sound is transcendent. I was visiting our sister Berta Cole in the hospital on Monday and in the lobby at Sintera Williamsburg, there was somebody playing a harp and I thought, it's my Wednesday sermon. Hospital lobbies are not a place where you're like, ah, this is home. But man, when I heard that harp, I was like, that's a heavenly sound in a place that we don't always associate with heavenly things for sure. It's a transcendent sound and the church of heaven sings with a collective glorified voice that is like the harp. It's clearly spiritual. It's otherworldly. And this should be no surprise. How else would they sing in heaven before the Lamb who stands on Zion? When we see them uh, in heaven again in chapter 15, the choir of overcomers are actually holding harps, instruments of praise in their hands. It says there, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And the song that they sing before the throne and the four living creatures and the elders is a new song. 
This is often what we are called to do as believers. When God does a great work, we sing a new song to him. Psalm 98, oh sing, a new song, uh, oh sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. It's because God has done these great things that we want to sing a new song to him. It's because his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation that we want to sing a new song. The Psalms are filled with these calls to sing a new song and to play skillfully on the strings. Psalm 40 says to, uh, to have a new song placed in the mouth. Psalm 96 speaks of uh, a new song being sung in response to what God has done, much like Psalm 98. In Psalm 144, the psalmist promises to sing a new song to God. Even in the book of Isaiah, there is a prophecy that commands a new song be sung to the Lord. We saw a new song in Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The ages of eternity are going to roll on and on, and the people of God will just keep writing more and more new songs as we behold the brilliance of the Lamb day after day. Every new day in heaven will be a new day filled with new songs. That isn't to say we don't sing old songs. When you get to chapter 15 and we're back in heaven again and we have those believers standing there with the harps in their hands, they break out in a song, but it's not a new song. They sing the song of Moses from Exodus 15. So what that tells us is we'll sing in Christ alone, right? It's a newer song and we'll rejoice in that. And we'll sing a mighty fortress, an older song, and we'll rejoice in that because they're both good. As the people of God, we are and should be obsessed with bringing old and new songs before the Lord to reflect to him the glory that he has. It's not all. They sing not just a new song, they sing a covenant song because nobody can sing it except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Unless you're part of the church triumphant, unless you have overcome, you can't sing the song which tells us that the songs of heaven, the songs of triumph, the songs of the kingdom, they belong to the saints. They are our possession. Those who have taken the mark of the beast worship the beast. They bow down to the beast because signs and wonders performed by the false prophet convinced them to. They have no song of praise for the Lamb. His praise is an instrument they do not have hands to play. It's a covenant song. And these people sing it because they're covenant people. They're redeemed. You see that in verse 3. They've been purchased. They've been bought. It wasn't their work. They were imprisoned by their own sin debt and, and they were chained to eternal punishment like a dog to a post with no hope of rescue. It was the work of God to save them through the blood of Christ. He paid for their sins. And the glorious thing that you see in verse 4 is they're just the start. It's just the first fruits. As John and these Asia Minor believers look to those who have overcome, they can be sure that more will be saved. Because whenever there's first fruits, you expect that more harvest is on the way. And so as you see the church triumphant here in Revelation 14, understand that heaven is being filled, but it's not full yet. The church militant on earth adds to their number through baptism, but we lose from our number when we place brothers and sisters in the ground. 
We lost from our number in the last couple of weeks when we laid our sister Shirley Rawls to rest in her final resting spot until the Lord Jesus calls her up out of that grave. And she entered in through the door of paradise and she became a part of the church triumphant. And our loss becomes heaven's gain. So yes, these overcomers who stand with the Lamb, they're just the start of the harvest. More is on the way. And that should inspire you and I to go and tell. Go and tell. They're pure. John says they have not defiled themselves with women. This is where you get into trouble playing with literalism in Revelation. If Zion is literal, then is the 144,000 literal? Is that all there is? And if they are, are they all males who are virgins? Well, of course not. The male virgins is just, it's just a symbol of a pure church, right? A church that is not deviated from God's design for sexuality, that is not given in to the ethics of the culture. When we get into the rest of chapter 14, we will meet a new character in the epic. We'll meet Babylon, and Babylon will represent any world system or power that refuses to submit to God and that is opposed to God. Babylon has a cup of passionate sexual immorality that she makes the nations drink. But the church triumphant did not drink that cup. They refused. Therefore, they're pure. They're committed. You see this in verse 4. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is the opposite of the people who dwell on the earth. They follow the beast wherever He goes. They are idol worshipers, devoted and bowing down to the beast. But the church triumphant mimics Christ. They follow Him. And this is key because John Calvin taught nothing is more fatal to us than to refuse to give ourselves in obedience to God. And if that's true, if there is nothing more fatal than to refuse to give yourself in obedience to God, we could say the opposite is also true, that there is nothing more life-giving than surrendering to God. And if that's true, then it should be no surprise to us that in God's throne room, a place of life and perfection, there is utter surrender from these people. They're blameless. You see that in verse 5. Their sin has been traded in for the righteousness of the spotless lamb. They're blameless because God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that in Christ the church can become the righteousness of God. And that is what we are. We are blameless living sacrifices of praise to our God, not just in this life, but as we see here, for all of eternity because the righteousness of Christ makes us fit for the throne. We can boldly come and praise Him there, blameless. And these people are also truthful. This is in contrast to the two beasts. Remember the first beast uttered haughty, proud, blasphemous words. The second beast was speaking the lies of the dragon. But since the 144,000 did not take the mark, they don't sound like the beast. They sound like Jesus. They tell the truth. Here's the thing. You and I spiritually are seated in the heavenly places. This is what Paul has taught us. And yet, I am not fully a part of the church triumphant yet. And neither are you. We are the church militant. We're on earth, lined up, rank and file, still in the midst of the tribulation. In a sense, you've already overcome in Christ because you're more than a conqueror in Him, but in another sense, we are absolutely still waiting to overcome, still enduring. But as we wait, the church on earth must reflect the church that is in heaven. Though we are the church militant now, we want to reflect the church triumphant. 
I know that because we're the church militant, we're on earth and we're still being sanctified, we still have sin, and that sin exposes itself in our fallings and our failings, but we should be striving for purity, for blamelessness, for truthfulness, for a worshiping life that is a witness to an idolatrous world. We should be committed, following the Lamb wherever He goes. And the only way that the church on earth will be these things is if it stays close to the Word of God. Because it is the Word of God that is our life and our authority. It is the Word of God that teaches us. It is the Word of God that corrects us and rebukes us. It is the Word of God that trains us in righteousness so that we can mature and overcome these things we've been rebuked for. The Word tells us the boundaries in belief and behavior. And you must be vigilant about making sure that the Word is the primary voice shaping your life. And your pastors, we must be vigilant vigilant about making sure the Word is the primary voice shaping the church. Because without it, we will drift from our mission. Without it, we will downgrade in our rich theology and we will melt under the heat of tribulation. But the Word will ensure that these things do not happen, that we grow up into completion. It will purify the church. Our witness will be clear and the world will know that we do not come representing an earthly city and and, and, and the wisdom of man, that we are heavenly ambassadors preaching the word of God. And all that brings us to the final question. How do we defeat the dragon and his beasts? And boy, it is so tempting to step outside of the Bible for that answer, isn't it? It is so tempting. Even as I was preparing this message, Pastor Ben will tell you, I send my messages to Pastor Ben, partly so he knows what we can sing, but also partly so he can scroll through and make sure I'm not saying anything crazy. And, and, and say, hey, this, you might want to say that a different way. And I trust him to, to do that work. And I sent him three different versions of this sermon. Because I kept trying to leave the text to answer this question. We want to do that. We want to ask Allie Beth Stuckey. Allie, how do we defeat the beast? We want to say, Ben Shapiro, tell us. Greg Kelly, tell us. How do we defeat the beast? We see oppressive governments persecuting the church and the world stage. We hear the antichrist spirit of the age being blasted into our ears. And it feels like the oppression that's on that world stage could be coming to an America near you. But we cannot leave the Bible to seek answers for problems that the Bible has diagnosed. Can you imagine going to your doctor and he says, well, here's your diagnosis. And you say, okay, great, I'll see you later. You say, well, wait, where are you going? I'm gonna, I gotta give you the answer. I gotta tell you how we're gonna deal with this. Oh, no, 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 I'm gonna go find the answer. I'm gonna go Google it. So I'll see you later, right? Your doctor would go, what'd you come for, right? So if the Bible diagnoses the problems, and it has, succinctly, precisely, you can't then walk away from the Bible to go find your solutions for these beasts. Listen, as Jesus spoke to the Asia Minor churches in the first couple chapters of Revelation, He called on them to overcome. He called on them to conquer. He promised them a great reward if they would. Every single church, to the one who conquers, He said to Ephesus, I will grant to eat the tree of life. Revelation 2.11, to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.17, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. 
And I will give them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. Remember, if we suffer with him, we reign with him. Revelation 3.5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, if we suffer with him, we reign with him. Okay, great. You see that? You're like, all right, we need to conquer. We need to overcome. There's great reward there. So how do we do it? Well, this is where we can't leave the text. How have the believers in Revelation 14 conquered their enemies? How have they become a part of the church triumphant? Well, we already learned about this in chapter 13. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You overcome by enduring to the end. Revelation 14, 12. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints. We'll see this next week. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. After a grave warning about coming judgment, John reminds believers that that judgment should motivate them to endure for only those who endure to the end prove themselves to truly be saints who were saved by God's grace and the gift of His Son. It's not that those who endure to the end are earning their salvation by enduring to the end. No. But their endurance to the end is a proof of their salvation. It is the fruit of their salvation. It is the evidence that Christ is their Lord. Now here's the problem. Enduring to the end is hard because the dragon and the beast want to kill you. Why do they want to kill you? Well, we go to chapter 11. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Those are the two witnesses in chapter 11. They got killed by the beast. Why did he want to kill them? Because they were witnesses. Because they were preaching the gospel. They were attesting to the truth of the cross and the resurrection, the fact that Jesus is Lord. And now, seeing that, we have a full picture of what it looks like for the saints of God to stand firm in the face of the dragon's beast. In this world, we believe in Christ and profess faith. We witness and testify that he is Lord and the only hope for salvation and his kingdom is coming, so people must repent. And we don't stop that witness until the day we die, even if they would kill us for it. This is how you overcome. Being a witness to the end. And relating that back to Zion, the picture is quite beautiful. We have two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God with New Jerusalem as its capital city. The Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the church triumphant. And then there is the kingdom of man. The fallen world lying in the hands of the dragon, duped into worshiping his beast. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, but we live currently in the kingdom of man. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we do not have a home here. We don't have an address. We don't have a primary country. Our country is Zion. And one day, our country, and I believe this like I believe I have skin on my hand right now, one day, our country is going to come down out of heaven when the Lord Jesus returns. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And listen, 
On that day, every single kingdom of this world, including the one we are currently residents of, will be swallowed up. In one sense, the nations of the earth will be judged and purified with the fire of the wrath of God, but in another sense, they will be beautifully redeemed as the dead in Christ from the nations resurrect and are caught up with those who are alive and then reign with the Lord Jesus on the new earth forever. This is described in vivid language in Revelation eleven fifteen, where we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, meaning it's the end, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And until that day, when our country comes down and is established on the new earth, here's your job as a Christian. To be a heavenly ambassador for Christ, sent out by your heavenly embassy, your local church, Seaford Baptist, to preach the heavenly message, which is the gospel of the kingdom, so people will be rescued by the heavenly king, that is Jesus, and brought into his kingdom. I want to say it again, because this is what you're supposed to be doing. You are a heavenly ambassador for Christ, sent out by your heavenly embassy, Seaford Baptist Church, to preach the heavenly message, the gospel of the kingdom, so people will be rescued by the heavenly king, the Lord Jesus, and brought into his kingdom. And that's it. That's your job, and that is my job. As long as you are in the church militant, this is your primary objective. This is why we're starting new churches. It's why we're strengthening the churches we have. These are our embassies. The more embassies we have, the more ambassadors we are producing and sending out. We're gaining ground for the kingdom, and we are getting closer to the day when Zion comes to earth. That's the Great Commission. That's the whole point. Now, before we go, I know, because I know you, after 12 years of being your pastor, I know that a lot of you are sitting there and you're going, what about the government, man? Like, we can't just let the union fall apart. We can't just let the republic fall apart. New Testament has something to say about that as well. And I don't think this is a rabbit trail. I think it's actually very important because it connects to the Great Commission. Here's what the New Testament tells you about your relationship to government. Romans 13.1 says you should be subject to the governing authorities. In all cases, unless they tell you to do something that's going to cause you to disobey your God. You're subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13, 7, pay your taxes to the governing authorities. It's like the, you know, my least favorite Bible verse, right? Uh, but you've got to do it. We've got to pay our taxes. Romans 13, 7, you should give honor and respect to whom honor and respect is owed. Right? This is why I have absolutely no problem, even though I'm a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, in honoring the people who have served the earthly kingdom that I am a resident of and, and have fought to keep me free. Right? I have no problem giving those men and women honor because the Bible says I should. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says that a part of your peaceable and quiet life should be to pray for your leaders who are in high positions. And so that's the list. That is your regular expected responsibility toward government as a Christian. Subject yourself to it, pay your taxes, give honor and respect to whom honor and respect is owed, and pray for your leaders. Now, with that said, here's the thing about the Great Commission. It's fulfilled through the witness of the local church, but the witness of the local church will inevitably impact culture and governments. Our primary goal in the Great Commission is not to take over cultures and governments. However, a byproduct of the work is that cultures and governments are going to get touched. 
When the church is being purified by the word, and she's properly on her mission, and she's representing our lamb who is in Zion, there are times where we're going to have to step into the public square, and we're going to have to confront the civil magistrate. And the scriptures tell us when to do this. Right after Paul teaches on government being a servant of God that should be for your good, he says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Do you know what Paul assumes there? He assumes that if the government does the job it's supposed to be doing in verses 1 through 7, that if you go about your business of neighborly love as a Christian for the purposes of fulfilling the Great Commission, the government won't have a problem with that if they're doing their job correctly. If the government's doing their job correctly, society will be one in which neighborly love can flourish. Government should be doing this. If they are being a proper servant of God for our good, they will create an environment in which neighborly love can flourish. And you know what? When they fail in that, that is when we as the church walk into the public square with the posture of a prophet and we say to the civil magistrate, you need to repent. For example, when they're murdering babies in the name of convenience and so-called liberty, the church walks into the office of the civil magistrate and says, on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must repent of your sin. You are not creating an environment in which neighborly love can flourish. You're harming my neighbors. You need to repent. You're not doing your job. You need to repent. When Africans were being treated as property in the transatlantic slave trade, it was the more honorable sections of the church that walked into the public square and said to the civil magistrate, repent of this. When women could not vote in this country and be a part of the political process, the American suffrage movement was born out of the church when Christian women came into the public square and said to the civil magistrate, you must repent. If we do not stand up to oppressive rule that endangers basic neighborly ethics that have been written onto the conscience of every person, what I believe is we actually endanger the Great Commission. Because if I walk into my neighbor's home And I say, I represent the kingdom of Zion. I represent the Lamb. And I am here to tell you that a kingdom is coming in which you will never need to be defended. In which there will be nothing but love. And it's going to be glorious. You need to repent of your sin and put your faith in this Jesus. They're going to look at me and they're going to say, how can I trust your gospel if you won't defend me? How can I trust your gospel if you won't stand up for babies that are being slaughtered? So there are times that the Great Commission will actually take us to the school board meeting to defend our neighbors. But listen, that's a byproduct. That's not primary. We speak to Washington in the public square for the sake of our Zion witness, but that's a far cry from take back the culture and take over the government. It's fulfill the commission and represent Christ. And hold the government accountable for the sake of neighborly love so that when we proclaim the coming kingdom, our neighbors believe us. Because we have shown them the nature of the king and the nature of the kingdom and how we have defended them in the public square and said to the civil magistrate, you must repent. But I'm going to say this word to you, and I know I I, I need to wrap up here, but I am going to say this word to you. Listen, be real careful. Be real careful. 
Because what happens is you get your idea of what you need to defend your neighbor on. And your idea may not even be coming from the Word of God, but from some Republican talking head on some TV show you probably shouldn't even be watching, or some liberal talking head on some TV show you shouldn't be watching. If these people are not regenerate, if they don't have the Spirit of God, if they have their Bibles open as they're talking to you, they don't have the authority to speak to you on these things. Don't listen to them. I'm telling you, don't listen to them. They're going to steer you wrong, and you're going to end up getting the Great Commission wrong because you're answering the world's vitriol with vitriol. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be angry and frustrated and bitter. No. No. I would challenge you, church, to take a year and just read news headlines. Find yourself an unbiased news source. They're out there. I can help you with it. Get news headlines emailed to you. Turn your news off and read your Bible and react as a Christian. Not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, none of that. As a Christian. And then the Bible will tell you when to defend your neighbor. But don't wait on Rachel Maddow or Greg Kelly to tell you. They don't have the authority in your life to do that. Last thing I'm going to say to you tonight. When you wake up tomorrow, you do not have a mission to save your neighbor from the evil liberals. You don't. And you do not have a mission to save your neighbors from the return of the evil Trump either. You do not have a mission to take over a government or win political victories in the kingdom of man. You have a mission to make disciples. If you can convince your neighbor to vote red, but your neighbor is not regenerate and he dies and he goes to hell voting the way that you wanted him to vote, you have done nothing for his heart. Your political party offers no hope to your neighbor. It's just another solution made by man to fix man. Church, if we are Bible people, we have to start thinking more long-term. Not just about 2024. Not just about how America is going to look for our kids and grandkids. you got to look even beyond that 700 billion years from now. I don't know about you. I plan to be in Zion. I think you plan to be in Zion. Who's going to be there with us? Who's going to be a part of that kingdom? These are the questions the New Testament demands you answer with the action and obedience of your life. You must be a fisher of men if you will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You must cast the lore of the gospel witness upon the dark and deadly waters of the world, trusting that God will use His Spirit to pluck a sinner up from the depths to bite down on the gospel that you have thrown out on the water. That is the best thing that you can do for your community and your country. The best thing that you can do for any society on this earth is just to be Christian in it. Thoroughly Christian. Go to your church. Give to your church. Help make it pure by being obedient to the Word yourself and encouraging others to do the same. Start new churches through the ministry of your local church. Share the gospel with your neighbors and invite them into the church. Disciple the younger Christian in the faith in the church. Be salt and light. Live a peaceable life that all men may come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Raise Christian families. Submit to the government and pay your taxes. Use the legal means provided in society to push back on Caesar if Caesar is harming your neighbors. Maintain your Christianity, your witness to the very end. That's what America needs from her church. And that is how the Great Commission will be fulfilled. It's not through swords and elections. It's by Christians being Christians in the public square and in the backyard. And so church, if you're a part of his called out ones, if you're a part of the church militant on your way to victorious eternity, 
as the church triumphant, standing with the Lamb in joy over the bodies of the dragon and his beast, then you will hold to this witness to the very end. And I will hold to this witness to the very end. This is how the people of the Lamb overcome. Father God, we need your wisdom. We are so prone to seek the wisdom of man for for our answers. The wisdom of man is brutal. The wisdom of man is angry. The wisdom of man is selfish. The wisdom of man is after power. The wisdom of man is after votes. The wisdom of man pretends to care about citizens but really doesn't. The wisdom of man tells us that um, happiness is found in individual expression, particularly in sexuality. The wisdom of man is just preaching garbage, Lord. But the wisdom of God that we find in the world tells us what we are to be in this life. We are to be Christians. We're to represent Christ doing the things the New Testament has called us to do, fulfilling the commission that you have given us in the public square and in the private. Father, it is hard to be faithful in this world. But we have the Lamb on Zion tonight. Your Son stands on Zion. You have set your King on the holy hill. We just must kiss the Son for the rest of our days and we will not perish. And so we kiss Him tonight, Lord. We are devoted to Him. We have all of our allegiance piled up at His feet. It's nowhere else, God. It's just Him. Send us out, representing our King in this fallen world, heavenly ambassadors preaching the heavenly message. We need You, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.